Welcome to the Commercial Disco, the journey of commercial discovery, the only show dedicated to the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. We're talking this morning, and it is morning on a Wednesday in the middle of a lockdown Sydney with New South Wales Customer Service Minister Victor Dominello. Thanks, Victor, for taking time out of what must be an incredibly busy diary. You're welcome, James. And Minister for Digital, most importantly, these days. And Minister for Digital, and that's where we're going to start with this. Look, I don't want to dig too deep into specific COVID response stuff now. It's going to take us a few days to get this podcast up, but we are obviously waiting to hear about numbers for today and and the rest of Sydney is waiting also. But I wanted to ask you about digital transformation. New South Wales probably started its journey, I'm going to say, seven or eight years ago. We're really coming to grips with the establishment of Service New South Wales, and it's been a, a moving feast, but a kind of a staged progression of progress along the implementation of digital services. So look, I just wanted to ask you, what has that enabled? Obviously, COVID hit 18 months ago. Having had a platform and a a work stream in progress, what did that enable? And then what have you learned in the last 12 months and how has it changed priorities? Yeah, the most powerful lever that it has provided us is a can-do attitude, to be honest, James. Like, Seven years ago, when we started that service journey in 2013, 14, if we asked a segment of the public sector to do things that were completely outside the square and to do it really fast in an innovative way, the response would normally be too hard, never been done before, too risky. What we've created is a culture in service and now broadly department of customer service where they are now willing to do things that subject to security around it that governments probably wouldn't have tried before. So I think that's what it's done. So as a result of building that culture up, and it is a cultural piece, we were able to put in place the QR systems really fast. We were able to put in place the Dine and Discover voucher off the back of that really fast. The border security passes up really fast. There are a whole lot of things that we were doing in service that would normally take weeks and months and months that we were turning around really quickly. I remember you spoke at one of our events, I think 2018, certainly before the last state election. I remember you saying at the time, you ain't seen nothing yet. You had some big plans. Now, obviously, New South Wales government restructured the way government works effectively and the creation of your own department. So, I mean, you ain't seen nothing yet. You certainly didn't expect to be um, hitting a a pandemic like this. So just talk us through how priorities have changed. Like what's more important now than it was just pre-pandemic, specifically in terms of either capability building or service delivery or just the generic digital picture? Obviously, in terms of my portfolio and in general, the government's response is keeping people safe and livelihoods open. So our entire effort has been focused around that because it literally has been just extraordinary reallocation of resources. So I can say that there were a whole lot of things that I expected to deliver through the agency in the last 18 months that have definitely been put back in the hangar whilst we're doing other things to open up and stimulate the economy or to protect people in terms of QR systems and stuff like that. But one of the um, things I'm really driven the agency to make sure they don't lose sight of is with all of this enormous change that's taking place, let's drag the silver linings out of it. 
because there's a lot of pain and a lot of change, but we need to make sure that we bed our digital architecture into the future. And I'll give you an example. When we rolled out Diamond Discover vouchers to help stimulate the economy, it's never been done before around the world. Like around the world, governments constantly give money out, but they normally ask the customer then to get the receipts, then lodge a form, either paper or email, and then you'll have a bevy of public servants on the other line checking everything, asking for your bank account, and then after a couple of bits of correspondence, you might get money in your account. Using the QR system to basically swipe money gets paid to the business within three days, that, to our knowledge, hasn't been done before. But because we've got that up, we've now got close to, I think it's close to 5 million people that have now downloaded Dine Discover Voucher. Now, just to put it in broader context, Dine Discover Voucher, we're not giving money out to anybody. In order to get a Dine Discover Voucher, you've got to be a real person living in New South Wales. So you've got to provide 100 points of ID. But once we've got that, we've now got that for 5 million people so that in the event that there's other initiatives rolling out, we never have to ask you again, provided you give us that authority. We can store that detail securely for you so that true tell-us-once-centric approach to government now becomes almost automated. And that is a digital transformation on mass that we've never seen before. Yeah. Um, to get you know, close to 5 million people, essentially, now we are treating them as a whole rather than as a fragment of an agency. So that's, that's a massive, massive takeaway for me. And even the um, digital adoption of some of the senior people in our community and people that were not normally comfortable with digital, that's gone through the roof as well. In the past, people like my mum wouldn't really feel comfortable with digital. Now, instead of just using the phone, just to make a call, she's now realising I can use this feature to look at a QR system. So I'm now saying, well, now that we've got the seniors on that journey, keep them on the journey by digitising the seniors' card so that we can allow them to stay on that journey, which is a much easier journey than pen and paper. Yeah, that's uh, Dine and Discover. Very grateful for that. And so is the Vietnamese restaurant up the road, I guess. That's sort of an interesting one because I think that was originally a stimulus to get people out and, and getting into restaurants. So putting money or purchasing power in the hands of citizens or, you know, citizen yeah, consumers. Yeah. But then you tweaked that. You made it available for takeaways because there were COVID-related issues. You don't have to go into great detail, but I'm sort of interested when that decision was made, how long does it take to tweak something like that from a digital perspective? In terms of designing the QRs uh, for Dine Discover initially or for tweaking the policy settings? Yeah, just tweaking to enable people to use it for takeaways, you know, rather than oh, that, a... That's reasonably easy, to be honest. It's provided the money's there. The, the beauty of digital is once the platform's out and about and in use, it's very easy to tweak policy settings because digital's so agile, so nimble, whereas in previous systems, you'd have to move a whole army to change it. So... That wasn't a hard thing. That the hardest thing was getting the platform up and the acceptance up in the first place because it hasn't been done before. But I'll never forget a conversation with Dom Perite. We were in Parliament House and treasurers keep the budget very, very close to their chest. They reveal nothing. So we had the budget in November last year and Dom said, look, it was about October. And he said, look, I've got an idea. In England, they've got the Out and About program where you know, they were encouraging people to go and spend money into restaurants and stuff like that. And similar governments around the world were doing something similar. And he said, I'm thinking of doing something here. We'll put half a billion dollars into it, and uh, that way we can help the restaurant and hospitality sector. I said, thank God you've given me 
adds up because what we can now do is instead of simply giving money into people's pockets and then who knows where that goes, we can actually use the QR platform because people are now used to using QR to check in, use that platform as a de facto payment system through Dine Discover. And that took, we had to pilot that because it hadn't been done before and you know went through a series of initiatives to make sure that got off the ground, Broken Hill, the rocks, then broad CBD, et cetera, et cetera. And now, as I said, you know, we've got close to 5 million people on it. If I look over my shoulder in years to come and say, you know, what was a big digital transformation piece, it was that. Because what that also enables us to do is, again, subject to people's consent and authority, and people have to be in the driving seat of all of this, and that's critical in the design. But in the future, where identity is becoming more and more important because there's so much fakery out there in the world, I really believe that governments... We will never control the fakes. In fact, with augmented and virtual reality and all that stuff, it's going to be hard to distinguish what's real and what's fake. So I think governments will increasingly certify what's real and just let the fake just sort of, you know, roam. I think that in this world moving forward, we need to rapidly bed down identity. And we don't discover you've already got the kernel of that there. So in the future, you could use your service New South Wales app because you've already gone through your Dine Discover, say, I don't want to show you my identity documents. I've shown service. That should be enough. They can validate who I am. And again, if I was to do this before the pandemic, you start with maybe a cohort of 20,000 and then slowly build it up over years, like the digital driver's license. And then that plateaus out. So we rapidly got to 20%. The early adopters came in. Then it plateaued out. It was always increasing, but very slow burn after that. After Dine Discover, the amount of people then using digital driver's license went through the roof as well. So that means we have, again, a digital transformational mass. So whether it's the identity piece, if people want to opt into that, whether it's a payment platform, if people want to opt into that, because that's coming down in the pipeline as well. All of these things, we can now you know, click our fingers and offer that service to 5 million people. It's just extraordinary. We have really lifted the base. And as you say, it has taken, we've all been on a bit of a journey as far as trust goes, but uh, yeah. guys have had active kid vouchers out there for some yeah. time, creative kids vouchers, obviously the driver's license, boating license, and there's there's been that build. COVID gave everyone an accelerated adoption, I suppose, from citizens to your own operations. Yeah. yeah. I'm conscious of time, Minister. Now, my personal thing is around sovereign procurement. How do we turn small Australian businesses into large Australian businesses and how can governments become customers? Now, you announced with the Premier the Digital Restart Fund last year, I think it was in June-ish last year, $800 million, as I remember, that was boosted to $1.3 billion in June this year to make sure that the investment in digital creates capability across the economy. And obviously, you've had an ICT sovereign procurement task force in the meantime. I wanted to talk through some of those issues because I, I think, well, I'm, I'm wondering how successful that process has been. And we rely a lot on overseas tech, like this is Australia. We're smallish in this way. Of course, we do. But how do we ensure that these companies really are able to build our local industry? Talk me through that. Yeah, well, we've gone now to a record $2.1 billion for digital restart fund, and that is a lot of uh, grunt in the engine now uh, that we've never had before. But I think the biggest play, particularly in a world that is increasingly schisming between autocracies and democracies, 
where the West realising that we have to work together to make sure that our freedoms are protected, et cetera, et cetera. We need to work with the giants in the US and not just the US, in the UK and a whole lot of other places around the world. But when they come here and they want to play in our patch, my message to them is partner up. You can come here and just be an island, but that's of no value to us. If you come here and then through the procurement settings, we say, look, we will provide or procure services from you, but that means that you must buddy up with SMEs in New South Wales in order to access part of the $2.1 billion. That's the most powerful lever that we've got because I'll get representations and legitimate representations from the big providers saying, look, we're your allies, we've provided great service, you should be part of, part of helping us out. And I said, listen, you do not want Australia to be a passenger as part of the Five Eyes. You want Australia to be a strong participant as part of the Five Eyes. It is absolutely great that the giants in the US in particular are doing so well and innovating and, and forging ahead and creating great service delivery. But Truly, you need to make sure that you're partnering up with us so that we can build our capacity as well. Because a strong Australia is a strong network. If we're just a passenger, then there's a lot of lot of burden on your shoulders. And I think they understand that. So that's probably the single biggest lever we've got to make sure that the big techs are helping cultivate our local environment as well. Right, buddy up. I like it. Now, I want to dig a little bit, just a, a little bit further into that. The ICT Sovereign Procurement Task Force was kind of an interesting process and, and there were some things that came out of that. One of the discussions that I understand that took place was around this idea of a retained economic benefit being a, a criteria when buying technology. So what's the broader contribution beyond productivity gains in government or what, or what have you? But I don't think it was formalised into policy once that task force had completed its work. So what's your thinking on something like that? Uh, it goes to uh, three letters, FTA, free trade agreements. And uh, we're in New South Wales, we, we've got a certain degree of sovereignty, but ultimately we've got to play the Commonwealth game. And the Commonwealth uh, is, uh, that's my mum, I'll call her back. Oh, come on, you've got to take your mum's call. Wait, so I'll I can't say no to mum. Hey mum, I'm just in the middle of a conference, so I'd like to call you back. All right, thanks. Okay, bye. Oh, that's, fan that's fantastic. Sorry. I love it. <laughs> always, mum's always said worry, yeah. sorry. So, yeah, so we had to, and there's a whole lot of agreements that the feds uh, understandably have bought into. I'm not critical, it's completely unsensible, but, um, you know, we, we just have to dance around that. Okay, so look, I'm going to dig a little further. So, specifically, that was the advice of the Department of Trade to you that yeah. the, the, the stuff you were talking on retained economic benefit is not. Okay. Well, in, in the sense that it, you, we can't do things that would effectively give advantage, you know, overt advantage to companies here because it would be offensive to FTAs that we've entered. Okay, I'm going to ask you something that has been in, certainly talked about at the Commonwealth level. In the US, Joe Biden, he's got a kind of a, but one of the first things he did as president was sign an executive order, the Made in America order, I think is a generic term for it, but basically it's a buy American. It kind of formalised the rhetoric of Donald Trump in a sense. So he's very keen that the US government must, in any purchasing decision, buy American or have a reason why it's not buy American. So I just wonder, how does that stack up against an FDA? 
No, I, I, I can try and get the advice to you. <laughs> As I said, like we, like the, the rhetoric is fine in the sense that you know we could all go out there and encourage to buy Australian or buy New South Wales, and that's a great thing. But to actually put it into agreements to say that if you're Australian, you have a loading, an advantage, a tariff essentially, then that's the offensive part. So the rhetoric's good. If people want to make informed choices, that's great. But my understanding is that to essentially provide a loading into a contract, so you must buy in, in circumstances where everything else is equal, that's the offending part. Okay, let's move along. This is sort of a related area. But when we talk about digital supply chains, or we just talk about supply chains generally, but tech has been impacted in the same way that everyone else has by, by COVID issues. So this is kind of a roundabout question, but obviously... David Gonski did some work with a task force on a review. I think Gabrielle, your colleague, Gabrielle Upton, was running with uh, New South Wales Chief Scientist Hugh Durrant-White, the goal of which was to make New South Wales a research and innovation capital. Now, when we mix those two things, supply chains and that goal, and then, sorry, this is a, a long convoluted question, and we throw in Dom Perrottet's strings attached to the budget, how much appetite is there for big ticket items. I'm thinking silicon fab plants. I know there's a report going around wondering whether Australia should have a capability here beyond what it currently has in building processes. Or when we talk vaccines, mRNA, I know that various states are looking at, at building their own facilities. Is government still looking at big ticket items to drive that kind of research and innovation agenda in this state? Uh, yes, uh, and I, again, it's not my—it's it's not my prerogative to give too much away. But the, the short answer is yes. And if anything, over the last two years, we've learned that we must—we just can't have all our eggs in one basket. Even our best allies in the UK and the US, ultimately, if push comes to shove in a pandemic, they will rightly look after their citizens first. So we need to make sure that we have the same resilience built into our system. We can't just simply think we'll wait for the next big farmer from US or wherever to provide a vaccine. And, you know, we're obviously thinking about a vaccine, but it carries right across the board. Like, where are the other areas where we could be vulnerable in terms of supply lines and chains that we need to start building up here? Now, Australia is not huge in, in global scale in terms of population, but we're not tiny. With a population of 25 million, we should have enough capability internally to build some minimum viable products, as it were, to keep us going during tough times. So, yeah, definitely governments, not just New South Wales, but all governments must think about this. Okay, Victor Dominello, I did promise we'd keep this interview tight, and I did also say we're going to cover a lot of territory. There is one final area. I think in the last couple of days, there's been agreement across the states and the Commonwealth on data sharing. Yeah. There's been kind of a long time coming, or certainly it's been in discussion for a long time. I think everyone kind of agreed that this was something that should happen. So what has actually happened now? Can you just step us through that announcement of the last couple of days? Yeah, well, they've formalised a whole lot of data sharing provisions between states and the feds. But in the past, I'll give you I'll give you a concrete example, James. Like at the beginning of the pandemic, I'll never forget this. We were trying to get mobility data from all around the place for obvious reasons, because mobility was a proxy for uh, transmission, and we would be getting data from certain agencies in the feds. And the DAC, the Data Analytics Centre, was getting that data pretty quickly. 
because they built up a good relationship. You know, they had the agreements, MOUs, everything else in place, and it goes to trust as well. Um, so they built it up. As it turns out, there were all these other agencies inside of the government that was trying to get the same data as well from whether it was the, the federal agency or banks. And what they would do, because banks had a whole lot of data and telcos had a whole lot of data, what they would do is they would give data to one agency in New South Wales but not another because the relationships were formed. It was just insane. Like you would have thought that there'd be one central point like the DAC that we've created to basically be that receptor of data from telcos, from banks, from federal agencies, et cetera, et cetera. And that then, you know, secure private framework disseminates it and it then gathers insights and then spreads out across as needed. That architecture, we thought about it when we created the DAC, but it never really took off. As a result of the pandemic, both federal and state governments have realised data sharing is so critical, right? Even with this stimulus that we just announced yesterday, you know, for us, the feds want us to roll it out through service and more than happy to do it. But for us to do that seamlessly, we need to have a data sharing arrangement with ATO, for example, because if the ATO aren't part of the picture, then how do we know whether a business is a business is a business type thing? So these agreements formalise what should have been done many, many years ago, but we're only done in circumstances where you know, two good working public servants just said, well, let's get rid of the red tape, let's sign up an MOU and let's get it done. These agreements get rid of a lot of the excuses for sharing data. And I guess guardrails in place around privacy and the use and all that. As, as, as it should be. That, that is a non-negotiable. It's sacrosanct. And I'm one of the biggest advocates for privacy and security, as you know. But if we're talking about people's health and everything else downstream, we can't say don't share data because of privacy in circumstances where you can fix this privacy with a technology solution, which is even better than a piece of paper. You know, some people use privacy as a mantra to, to stop innovation and stop service delivery. I don't, I don't like that. I want privacy to be baked in. I want, in fact, not just baked in, enhanced. But you can do that through technology, and I learned that in Estonia. They've got better privacy settings than we do here because I'll tell you now, if you're an Estonian citizen, you will know somebody's looking at your file because you'll get a notification on your phone. Here you'd have no clue. You'd have no clue. So you can use technology to enhance privacy settings rather than, you know, some people using it, as a, as I said, as a mantra to, to stop things from, you know, from innovation occurring. All right. Victor Dominello, Minister for Digital and Minister for Customer Service in New South Wales. Uh, it's great to talk with you. I think we could probably talk for quite some time, but um, I'm going to leave you. Thanks very much for joining us. And uh, I suggest you go and talk to your mum. <laughs> She's probably got some more food ready for me, which is most welcome. Very good. Okay. Hey, seriously, thanks very much. Thanks, buddy. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please go over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our recent stories on tech, innovation, and public policy. Or you can follow us on social media to ask us any questions or be a guest on the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead. Bye.